April 25th, 1981, attendees at the European Watch, Clock, and Jewelry Fair in Basel got their hands on something completely new. IWC had introduced their Porsche Design Titan chronograph earlier in the year, and this was the first titanium watch available for sale. The revolutionary material caught the watchmaking world off guard, and the Titan helped IWC and their partner JLC survive the quartz crisis. This is the story of the watches created by legendary designer Ferdinand Alexander Porsche and the radical utilitarian watch designs he created with IWC. It's also a story of how materials and design can spark customer enthusiasm and watch sales. These are the watch files where we tell the stories of the events that changed the horology industry. I'm your host, Serge Maillard, publisher of Europostar. And I'm your co-host, Stephen Foskett, publisher of Grail Watch and contributor to WatchWiki and Europa Star. Each episode of The Watch Files focuses on a different story, helping our audience better understand the people and companies they hear about every day. Let's begin our story with the legendary designer, Ferdinand Alexander Porsche. If that name rings a bell to you, well, that's because his last name is not uh, unrelated to the famous automobile. In fact, uh, F.A. Porsche, or Butzi, as a, he was a, apparently nicknamed by his family, was uh, the grandchild of legendary Porsche founder, Ferdinand Porsche. And he was also the designer of a car that you may be familiar with, the Porsche 911. But this story actually begins a little bit before F.A. Porsche. I think that we should start by talking about materials and the materials that the watches and the cases are made up uh, from and and how that influences consumers. Serge, uh, I know that you've been following the industry your whole life. So tell us a little bit more about the importance of materials in watch designs. Uh, Especially since, I would say, the the turn of the millennium, we've seen a super high uh, R&D efforts in uh, research of materials and brands such as uh, Hublot or Richard Mille, of course, are very well known for introducing new materials. And some of these materials, which were actually not really mainstream, especially titanium that we're going to talk about today, today become more and more mainstream. And uh, we see, for instance, with titanium, uh, a wider uh, range of watch brands uh, introducing watches with uh, titanium watches. So for me, materials is like a race, it's a constant race. Some brands introduce new materials, then others uh, follow suit. So the pioneers also have to find new materials, new colors to introduce. We've seen a lot of sapphire, we've seen a lot of uh, play with uh, the colorful um, uh, gems. Um, so this is uh, this is a, an area of research that is a bit like a, a race against the clock. Um, as far as t- titanium is, is concerned, this is a very popular uh, watch uh, material, um, and this year maybe more more than more than ever we see brands in all kinds of uh, ranges, price ranges, introducing this uh, this material. But uh, titanium really emerged as a super material, a so-called like super material after World War II, because it was used in many military, aviation, and aerospace applications. If you think about titanium, first you think about uh, the space race, you think about aviation, because it's a, a material that is very light. Uh, but it's a material that is also difficult in uh, working with, in uh, machining. It's uh, 
it it has the 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 advantages of his uh, his uh, uh, problems, and the the opposite is true in a way. Um, so it would be de- decades before the first production titanium watch uh, would appear. And if we look through the archives, uh, we can say that Omega was really the first to use titanium in a watch. Um, it appears that only prototypes were made. So it really shows that titanium was first uh, material that, we, that was used in the military realm or in the exploration realm. And in 1970 and 1971, um, there was some coverage of uh, titanium, t- uh, titanium version of the Seamaster 600 Proprof watch of Omega, uh, which used a case machine from a block of titanium, uh, which made it both strong and light, which has the two main advantages of the titanium. So we we can read through the, the archives in, in Europa Star that uh, these uh, prototypes were used during the Janus expedition in Corsica in September uh, 1970. And uh, we have actually images of, uh, of this watch, and there is a specific attention given to the use of titanium. Uh, however, it was not a commercial watch, um, so we cannot uh, we cannot talk about a mainstream watch. Of course, um, there is a, a website omegaproprof.com which notes that the Finnish advertisement uh, specifically lists a titanium version of the watch, but uh, this this website also says that it was simply a proposed model. Uh, so it's, it's as always with history, we don't have the hundred uh, percent certitude that uh, of, of this fact, but uh, we can say that it was a prototype. Why it was not commercialized? Uh, we can say it is, of course, extremely durable, shock resistance, but it has also an unusual patina. Um, it looks quite different from steel over time. And as we'll see, this leads to the to the next use of uh, of titanium in watches. We should also mention that Citizen of Japan produced an experimental titanium watch at this time. Their X8 chronometer used raw titanium in the case, just like the Omega, and was produced at the same time. Like the Omega as well, it was an experiment and not a successful one. In fact, Citizen quickly stopped production, and this watch is not mentioned in any uh, contemporary technical or promotional material for the company, and it received no coverage in the West. In fact, uh, this watch appears to have had no impact at all on the market until 17 years later when Citizen came out with their next titanium-cased watch, the Atessa which bears more than a strong resemblance to the Porsche design line then produced by IWC. So although there were companies experimenting with titanium at this time, it was not actually produced in volume as a production wristwatch. One other interesting aspect that you mentioned is the look and feel of titanium, and this brings us to the next use of the material in horology. Um, It was a company called Metaux Précieux, SA. Uh, two years later, two years after the, the Omega um, Proplof uh, prototype that came to Basel, to the Basel Fair in 1973, to promote the so-called mystery and beauty of crude titanium. 
And if you go through the Europester archives, uh, you will find uh, the image of this uh, advertisement. And it's true that it has a very unusual look uh, with uh, previously unseen color, texture. It looks really like a, like a UFO watch in a way. And But uh, as this material was still difficult to work with, um, a, 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 it was rather economically relevant to, to start with the bezel or the dial. Um, Sima also appears to have created uh, a chemically treated titanium dial in 1974. And another company, Watch, used the titanium dial in their 1975 Blue Dream for ladies. So we think that the implementation was first either a prototype for exploration or it was used more as a cosmetic effect uh, for the dials on uh, uh, ladies' watches, among, among others, um, because of the un unusual texture and finish of titanium. But none of these brands really leveraged the unique uh, structural properties of the metal. That is until uh, we can talk uh, more in depth of Ferdinand Alexander Porsche, because he was really the first one who would give this material a whole new horizon in watchmaking. Indeed, he did. And so, as you mentioned, uh, titanium was incredibly difficult to work with, but it was well known, especially after World War II in military and aerospace. But uh, I guess they thought that it was just too hard, um, too challenging for them to, uh, to, to build a watch case out of it. That's why an outsider uh, really helped to popularize this material. As we mentioned, uh, Ferdinand Alexander uh, Butzi Porsche uh, was the grandson of the absolutely legendary Ferdinand Porsche, the originator of that car line. Uh, his father was Ferry Porsche, who basically uh, made the company what we know. But F.A. Porsche was just as important. Uh, this guy, uh, he studied design and he uh, came into his family's company, uh, worked with um, the, another legend of motor design, uh, Erwin Comenda, who uh, was responsible for a lot of the Porsche designs of the 1950s and 60s. And uh, F.A. Porsche designed a little car called the 911. That's right. He created the legend, the legendary shape, one of the most iconic shapes in the history of automotive design, the Porsche 911. But he was actually more uh, proud of his work on a racing car, the Porsche 904. And if you take a look, uh, actually, the Wikipedia page has great pictures here of the 904. Um, wow, what a beautiful car. So uh, legend goes that Ferry Porsche was reading a biography um, of, um, I believe, Honda, uh, Suichiro Honda, um, who said that uh, companies shouldn't rely on um, family members. They should be, uh, you know, they should use professionals. And he decided, uh, like kind of on a whim, to kick out all the Porsche family from the Porsche company including his own son, um, who was responsible for like the company's greatest design. And so uh, essentially, uh, F.A. Porsche found himself out of a job in uh, the early 1970s, and he founded his own company, Porsche Design Group. Uh, this was uh, located at the company, at the, the family's, uh, one of the family's estates in Austria. And uh, the company is uh, still located there. Um, the uh, one of the first things that uh, F.A. Porsche did 
uh, once he started his own design group was uh, design a watch. He uh, came up with an idea for a, a watch that was based on the dashboard gauges, the very clean dashboard gauges of uh, Porsche race cars. Uh, and he thought of this idea that, that he would create a motorsports in, uh, connected watch with his famous name that could be sold at uh, Porsche dealers and um, you know, to enthusiasts. So this was uh, about a decade after the first uh, motorsports and, and watch uh, fad came and uh, it followed on the heels of uh, famous watch connecting, you know, exploits of racing drivers and companies and the success of companies like Hoyer and Rolex at selling uh, watches that were obviously inspired by uh, this kind of design. So Porsche decided to create a watch. And so he looked around for a partner and he settled on a partner in the German speaking part of Switzerland called Orfina. And uh, Serge, go ahead and, and tell us a little bit more about Orfina and the uh, Porsche, the original Porsche design watch. Yeah. Um, so it's in 1974 that the, the first uh, watches were unveiled and uh, uh, the, under the name Orfina um, with the Porsche design on the, on the dial. And uh, we, we have some vintage advertisements that are quite interesting. Um, the, the cases were actually so um, covered in a special hardened black coating for durability. And uh, the first reference, the reference 7075, uh, 50, sorry, chronograph one, uh, it used uh, the value 707050 automatic chronograph movements. And there was also a smaller companion watch, the reference 7050, which used a simple, more simple automatic movement. Um, it was, Orfina was not uh, a, a giant partner, so it had uh, limited uh, resources uh, in terms of uh, technical uh, and production uh, capabilities. So it was a first move in order for, for, for Porsche, uh, in order to, to enter the, the Swiss uh, watch market. And, you know, once you, you get it to know the, the actors, uh, you, can, you can evolve in this ecosystem in a way. That's what he did very, very smartly. And these brands, this, uh, these first watches were marketed under the Porsche name. Uh, and they were also connected in advertisement to the Porsche racing team and to Ferdinand Porsche's uh, uh, legacy. Because as Stephen mentioned, uh, it was a, let's say, uh, difficult relationship with the, with the car maker because he, he had been kind of uh, uh, said by his father to, to look for something else. And um, he, was, he, he, he made some references to, to Porsche but uh, they were they were maybe more subtle that it was like uh, if it had been like a, an official partnership as we would imagine today between Porsche and as we actually seen quite recently, uh, it was not the same the same um, the same thing then. Um, then, as Orfina was a lesser known company, their name was replaced on the dial with a PD logo in uh, for Porsche design in 1977. Uh, as a new line was released, uh, and this line used the Lemania uh, 500 movements. Um, 
And uh, they are distinguished by their forehand stack with minutes and second counters in the center and a 24-hour dial at, uh, at uh, 12 o'clock. Um, so these later Porsche design chronograph one watches are actually heavily in demand today, uh, among others uh, for the use in the, in the movie Top Gun. Um, but for, for Ferdinand uh, Alexander Porsche, there was a limit to what Orfina could, could do. So he was looking for another partner. Porsche needed somebody who could basically take his his product to the next level because as you say he orfina was able to create a watch that had this pvd coating which had never been seen before um in the watch industry at least to my knowledge uh but the watch was actually pretty run-of-the-mill uh, it was a pretty standard case the movement as you say was uh, an off-the-shelf movement uh, this was one of the first uses of the value 7750 but uh contrary to a lot of internet rumor and speculation uh, it didn't come out in 1972, which was literally two years before that movement came out. And um, it uh, wasn't the first 7750 uh, watch. In, in fact, it was uh, about a year after some of the others. But but that, th th that being said, um, Orfina just couldn't do what uh, Porsche wanted. His vision was bigger than that. So he, he had another watch in mind and he needed someone who could create an anti-magnetic movement and he wanted to use aluminum as the case material, which was something that uh, was a, a real challenge at the time. So he went to another uh, company in German-speaking Switzerland that uh, many of us are all familiar with and, and asked them for help, IWC. And uh, IWC, the international watch company, had great, great skills, uh, great talent. Uh, one of IWC's talents was that they were able to manufacture anti-magnetic wheels and modify the internals of the movements. They also had uh, much more resources financially in order to create a, uh, an aluminum case, a special uh, custom bracelet, all that sort of thing. And so in uh, 1978, uh, IWC introduced its own Porsche design line. And the first IWC uh, Porsche design watch was uh, the so-called uh, Compasseur, which is uh, the we know in English as the compass watch. This thing is pretty weird uh, to our eyes, but it actually has a pretty nice look to it. Essentially, it is a wristwatch, a time and date wristwatch that looks um, pretty standard, if pretty military and, uh, and utilitarian. So it's got an anodized aluminum, uh, black aluminum case and bracelet. Uh, it has a crosshair dial with simple stick markers. It looks very, very Porsche, very utilitarian. But you flip up the, the watch part. Uh, it's hinged at the top at the 12 o'clock point. You flip it up and underneath the watch is a compass. And so the idea was that this was some sort of an exploration or uh, adventure or military watch. And, um, and it capitalized on a lot of the enthusiasm for those sorts of things at the time in a way that very few other watches did in 1978. If you look in the catalogs in 1978, you'll see that there was a lot of focus on uh, kind of 
frilly ornamentation and gold and 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 shiny things and odd shapes. This thing looked like nothing else. It looked like it belonged on the wrist of some sort of soldier or adventurer. And that's really what Porsche was going for. I mean, he wanted this sort of uh, laid back design. And so the compass watch is, is just a remarkable, remarkable achievement uh, in its own right. Uh, as I said, it's aluminum cased. It uses uh, a, a thin movement that we're all familiar with, uh, the ETA uh, 2892, um, which was then new. Uh, so that movement had just been recently introduced. It was a very thin automatic movement, very durable, modified by uh, IWC. A couple of the modifications they did was they replaced some of the steel components with anti-magnetic components, but probably the coolest one, uh, stealing a page from companies like Romer, who had done this in the 1950s and 60s, is uh, they replaced the steel ball bearings that were really the signature of Eterna movements. I mean, literally the signature, the logo of Eterna is, is five ball bearings. They replaced the steel balls in the weight segment with ruby because that way it would be anti-magnetic. Because of course there's a compass right underneath the watch movement. And so the whole thing had to be made anti-magnetic so that the compass wouldn't interfere with it. Incidentally, that's also why they chose an automatic movement and not a quartz movement, because quartz movements use a uh, permanent magnet that would have interfered with the compass and would have actually destroyed the compass needle. And so uh, they were able to build this thing, this compass watch, and, and it got them a lot of attention. In fact, uh, this was one of the more famous watches of the time. Uh, IWC continued to produce it for many, many years, all the way up into the 1990s, basically a whole 20 years of the Porsche Design Partnership. And this was a, sort of a signature of the design direction that Porsche wanted to go in. Um, in fact, later uh, versions had a moon phase indicator. There was a version that was actually made in titanium in the 90s. Uh, but I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. Uh, let's first uh, talk about what we came to talk about, which is titanium. Yes, because the next step in that uh, collaboration between IWC and, the, and Porsche Design would be the first uh, production watch with a titanium case and bracelets. This is the IWC Porsche Design Titan chronograph, which was introduced in uh, late uh, 1980. And incidentally, that's the beginning of a new decade, but that's also the beginning of a new era in, in a way for, for, for the use of uh, titanium in, uh, in watchmaking, which moves from some prototypes or some, some, uh, uh, minor trials on the dial, some aesthetic, uh, to really being the whole uh, skeleton of the of the watch, if you will. So it was an evolution of the earlier uh, chronograph uh, one, as uh, in terms of uh, of design, um, but it was also entirely unique in a way because uh, rather than carry forward um, Porsche's rounded design it had a new uh, trail with integrated lugs and a shaped case that in a way suggested a tonal shape below the round bezel. Um, that was an era of uh, innovation on the design, new materials and new shapes in a way are the two uh, essentials uh, for, for uh, design. And, uh, and incidentally also, uh, that same time uh, was uh, marked the birth of uh, Hublot, uh, which was also play a big role in the use of uh, new designs and new materials in uh, in watchmaking. 
Uh, also to be noted that the chronograph uh, pushers were unique. They were integrated into the flat band around the case and spring-loaded for tactile feel. So really a new mix of form and function. Um, the dial was very reminiscent of aerospace, uh, and you could really see the, the origins of the use of titanium in a way. Um, and it takes the technical look of uh, the Speedmaster to the next level. Um, it, it had also some cues to the uh, uh, 911 of uh, Porsche in terms of the uh, dial, uh, which evokes uh, the, the gauges of the car with the, uh, as well as the cockpit gauges of uh, military air air aircraft. So this form over function aesthetic typical to Porsche was really at its, at its best uh, in this watch. So it's not only a, a feat in terms of... Uh, of integration of material. It's also associated with a very strong uh, design. But of course, it was the titanium case and bracelet that drew everyone's attention, as we can see in the, in the articles of uh, those years. And the use of titanium wasn't just a technical achievement, but it was also a primary selling point for the watch. And remember, it was uh, 1981 was really a time of... Uh, uh, strong uh, headwinds uh, for the for the for uh, against the the Swiss uh, watch industry, which was uh, battling with electronic watches and and trying in a way to find new relevance. Uh, it couldn't make sense exactly of the situation. Uh, should it go in the higher uh, level in the in the lower? Uh, segments in terms of prices. What's interesting with this Titanium watch is that it's innovation at the heart of the crisis. And that became also a primary selling point uh, for the watch because um, it, it was, it, it, they were eventually um, released in 1985, actually, the, 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 the raft of Titanium case watches. But that was a market, a new market that was dominated by IWC and Porsche design. And as you say before, IWC uh, was in trouble and uh, because of the quartz crisis. And this innovation, along with uh, other uh, so-called leader models, would help bring the company back to prominence um, with uh, the other two, uh, the Da Vinci, with Kurt Klaus' complicated uh, perpetual calendar chronograph movements, and of course the Gerald Janta design engineer SL. It was a, like a, a trilogy of watches that would put IWC back on the horological map. It's one of those things where, you know, the Compass watch would have been enough. The Titan certainly would have been enough for us to look back and say F.A. Porsche had a huge impact on horology. But his next watch, in my opinion, was even more important. So in uh, 1983, IWC and Porsche Design introduced another watch. And this thing is incredible. If you've not seen one of these things in person, it's worth seeing it. They introduced the Ocean, a dive watch. And there have been dive watches. There have been dive watches back to the 1950s. Uh, the dive watch trend and fad of the late 1960s is well known. But 
the IWC ocean was like nothing you've ever seen before. This thing was massive. So the uh, the the chronograph that that Serge mentioned is a forty two millimeter uh, cushion case chronograph. It actually looks a little Genta esque, uh, you know, because of the the way that that the, it has an integrated bracelet and everything. Well, the ocean is is something entirely different. It's also forty three ish millimeters. Um, I've seen people say that it's as much as forty four. I think it's actually technically forty two, but it's a big honking watch. It is. Um, it is, it is thick, it is wide. It has a, a rotating bezel like nobody's ever seen before this time. Um, rather than having the Rolex style bezel with uh, you know, the, the inlaid uh, numbers and, and, and all that, it has this big chunky thing that looks like it was taken off the top of a scuba diving tank, in my opinion. It's, it's got basically six round sections and six submerged sections. It has a little triangle that marks the uh, where you want it to go. It's it's a unidirectional with a, with a special ratcheting mechanism. Uh, it feels in the hand like a piece of military equipment. It feels like something you might find on a tank. The whole thing is made of titanium. The most remarkable thing, though, about the ocean was that it was waterproof to 2,000 meters, two kilometers, which, of course, I, I doubt it ever got used for. But, um, but the point is, um, you know, the titanium material uh, combined with a, a gasket that was actually made, no kidding, of platinum and silver. Uh, it had a, a, a sealed crown, uh, big, you know, it's, it's, it's big. Uh, the the closest thing that I can that I can say today is if you look at some of the Sin uh, EZM series uh, the, of their uh, basically emergency tool watches that they make for firefighters and and military and police and so on, uh, this is the ancestor, the spiritual ancestor of those watches. Essentially, it is a big honking chunky piece on the wrist, but since it's made of titanium, it's eminently wearable. It's got this wonderful integrated bracelet. Uh, the crown is at four o'clock. I mean, it's, it's just a great, great dive watch. And, um, this thing, uh, really affected the world more than the original Titan watch. In, in fact, uh, a personal story when I was, uh, I was a kid in the eighties. Um, I didn't, had never heard of IWC. I'd heard of Porsche, but I didn't uh, know about Porsche design. I didn't really know watches. But I wanted a watch, and the watch that I wanted was a Timex that had a titanium case with a big, chunky bezel. And um, it's obviously now looking back an homage to the IWC Porsche Design Ocean. And I remember thinking as a kid, uh, you know, I was probably 12 years old. I remember thinking, you know, titanium, it's sexy, it looks cool, it's got a cool touch, cool feel. I really wanted this watch. I actually got this watch. Uh, my parents were were nice enough to get it for me. It wasn't that expensive by the time. I mean, this was the late '80s, um, but it, but but it was an it was an homage. And and if you look at the tool watch craze, if you look at the sports watch craze, a lot of that was kicked off by the IWC Ocean. Uh, later, the Ocean became sort of a family. There was an Ocean 500. There was a quartz version, a small version. Um, Yes, they, of course, made a ladies' version. They even made them out of other materials. Uh, but this was an anchor of, of IWC.
the risk when you expand a line is that you try everything. The beauty in my 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 in my view of the of the first uh, designs in this collaboration was also this minimalist utilitarian uh, uh, functionalism. Uh, then, of course, it expanded to a whole variety of uh, of different designs, overcrowded. Uh, so it's it's uh, it it lost a bit that. Uh, that uh, special touch, um, but it was a primary example of how using a new material combined with a vision of design, not just for the sake of the new material, but respecting the legacy that comes with that material, could be a commercial success. And again, um, Hublot is another very good example of that, of mixing simple shapes with innovative materials, like his signature rubber straps. And as you mentioned also, uh, uh, Stephen, in your, in your very uh, thorough exploration of the archives, actually the IWC Porsche Design Sportivo and later Titan models from the 90s strongly resemble Hublot, actually. Well, we are used also in this industry to have some some cousin watches in a way, but um, it opened up new horizons in terms of mixing new materials with new design. Uh, we can think of Mark Newson as well, who created the line of uh, Ikepod watches in the 90s that also bore a resemblance to the work of, uh, of Porsche. Um, and uh, even today, and uh, maybe you want to say a word on that as well, uh, clearly, um, Johnny Ive and Apple Watch uh, had probably um, and was influenced in some way by the by the work of uh, of Porsche, and um, it goes to show that it's over the decades. Uh, you can look at these watches; they still look very very modern, very contemporary, and the earlier versions look more modern than the the versions that would that would follow. And uh, he had this, uh, like the, as a few designer in the, uh, you mentioned Gentile, of course, as well. Uh, he found this uh, compromise or this, maybe not compromise, not the right word, but uh, this association between uh, design and material uh, that would open up new horizon, but also make these watches kind of timeless, although they were not classical at all. <laughs> That's maybe the biggest paradox there. And isn't that true of the best watches, that they are uh, timeless, that they're surprising, that they're different? I think that a lot of us these days don't look at uh, Porsche design the way we ought to. I think that a lot of people may have been, they may have seen some of these later uh, products and thought, well, you know, that's maybe that's a fashion watch or maybe that's something cool, but not horologically significant. But I think that it's hard to deny the horological significance of the IWC Porsche Design Titan and the IWC Ocean Line, and even the Compass Watch and the Chronograph One with Orfina. Uh, these were significant, significant developments. And uh, as you said, um, you know, companies like Hublot, the whole concept of Hublot under Beaver was uh, this idea of fusion with rubber straps, with exotic materials with uh, sort of a techno look. 
And, and that really was premiered more by F.A. Porsche and Porsche Design than it was by Carlo Crocco and, and Hublot. Uh, even though Crocco, of course, came up with that glorious porthole and an hourglass shape that, 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 that Hublot still uses. So um, as you say as well, uh, you know, I, I see a lot of resemblance to some of the later uh, design some of the later watches. And in fact, you know, one of the things that I want to connect it with is today's watches. If you look at the products of a company like uh, Richard Mille, uh, what is the what is the defining factor there? What is the thing that makes those watches great? It's technology and materials science. And, and that really goes to what Porsche was trying to do. Now, you may look at that and say that's the antithesis of Porsche's design aesthetic. And that's totally true. I mean, this is, this is a guy who probably, I mean, he, he resisted having numbers and letters on the dial. I'm sure he hated the cursive IWC logo. Um, I'm sure that he wanted to reduce, reduce, reduce in terms of design. And, and obviously, Richard Mille is, is, is very different than that. But the idea that materials sell a watch is exactly the same. And, and if you look at what F.A. Porsche did with these watches, he took PVD coatings, he took anodized aluminum, he took titanium, he mixed metals, uh, he brought rubber straps, uh, he brought different strap case connections. All of these things are all about bringing different materials together or fusion, as, as Beaver famously said with, uh, with Hublot later. Uh, so, so this is really the legacy in my mind of F.A. Porsche and of the Porsche design watches. And they're really tremendous. Um, one thing I'd like to finish with here is, frankly, you may be surprised by this because I talk about watches all the time and I write about them and I do a podcast about them, but I don't get watches. I don't get watch collectors. I don't understand why one watch is, vintage watch is worth hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars and another isn't. Uh, the Porsche design watches that we've talked about are obviously incredibly important watches. They're also very cool watches and they're very wearable. The, you know, the titanium watches, especially the Ocean, the Chronograph, uh, the Titan Chrono, um, these things are super durable. They still look good. Uh, they have movements. Uh, they use 7750, uh, you know, the regular movements. Uh, they're easily to, easy to work on, easy to repair, um, to keep functional. And you can buy them for under $10,000. Uh, you can buy a beautiful, pristine, mint IWC Ocean um, for not much money. I don't understand why these things aren't more collectible. Yeah, they're collectible. Yeah, people know about them. But uh, if it was me, I would much rather have an Ocean and a Titan than a Beater Speedmaster Pro. Right, I would much rather have something cool like that. Um, but you know, maybe uh, maybe people will learn about them. Maybe they'll kind of open their eyes, and maybe they'll see uh, just how cool some of these old uh, IWC Porsche design watches are. Uh, I'll call attention, like I said, to the uh, you know the Ocean Two Thousand, the Compass Watch. Especially, I love the later Compass Watch that was made of titanium. Um, you know, just just great, great pieces that are that are widely available, and and I think should be on a collector's radar. I think everyone is looking for the next uh, vintage gem, so it could be one of one of those. And uh, we've seen in the recent years some uh, 
some models uh, that were highly soft, sought after. But we we also see the the rise in value of uh, some lesser known, maybe uh, uh, less mainstream models, and and certainly uh, whenever we talk about minimalism, about uh, uh, functionalism. Uh, IWC uh, Porsche design should should come to mind. Maybe just the last word on the fate of uh, of Porsche design. Uh, so finally, the the family disagreements were were resolved, and uh, the companies uh, Porsche design Porsche were um, uh, reunited. And the Porsche family even considered buying IWC, but eventually they acquired Etena uh, in 1995. And they terminated their argument with IWC in March of 1998. And um, IWC would uh, have a, a successor, in a way, of the Porsche Design Collection with their GST line, um, which used gold and titanium in, in combination in this, also in kind of fusion, as uh, this word is, is also a key word of today's horology. Um, then they would, the, under George Kern, they would uh, also uh, produce the Aqua Timer, uh, which re-established them in the sports watch, uh, watch space. For Porsche Design with Eterna, they moved down markets for higher volume. Um, so the, the line moved uh, down in terms of, uh, of uh, value. Um, the company also took over its own distribution, uh, but uh, as uh, as as we can imagine, today's uh, uh, value is not so much in volume as in uh, luxury, and the fusion strategy of Hublot uh, of, uh, worked much better, um, and uh, eventually the the production dropped, and the company was sold to China Hyden. Uh, now called City Champ. Um, so they continue to produce watches in Switzerland and uh, along with uh, accessories, eyewear, luggage, electronics. And uh, so it's not the same as uh, the glorious uh, age of uh, uh, F.A. Porsche uh, himself. He, he passed away in 2012 as uh, honorary chairman of... Uh, the supervisory board of Porsche, and this title was originally held by his father. So eventually, the family business was back to being a real family business, um, and we can really, as you say, Stephen, uh, pay tribute to to his contribution because let's not forget that he didn't come from the from the watch world, and as we repeatedly see along these episodes. Many of the greatest contributions to, to watch design came from outsiders, even with a great name, still an outsider. The design legacy of Ferdinand Alexander Porsche is undeniable. From the Porsche 911 to the titanium sports watches on today's wrists. If we look back at the original Chronograph 1, we see the launch of a minimalist and modernist design trend that's reflected in every oversized PVD-coated watch and the trick of combining materials like rubber, titanium, and aluminum, and steel is reflected in the fusion concept that made Hublot such a success under Jean-Claude Beaver. 
His utilitarian design ideals were also reflected by people like Mark Newson and Johnny Ive, and they impacted even the great nemesis of watchmaking today, the Apple Watch. Thank you for joining us as we open the watch files. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, share it with your friends, and let us know. You can find my writing at grail-watch.com or in the pages of Europa Star. And you can find my writing in Europa Star at europastar.com. Thank you for listening, and we will be back next week with another page of the Watch Files. And actually, we will be back uh, next week uh, with another page of the Watch Files because uh, we're doing something really cool. Indeed, we've uh, talked a lot about history through innovation, and we would like to extend this uh, storyline by including current innovators in the podcast, still in the Watch Files, still talking about innovation, but innovations in the making right here, right now. So we will invite a series of current innovators. We will, of course, uh, also make some bridges to to history uh, because it remains our, our passion. But we will have a look to the future of innovation as well. So we will keep talking about materials, about designs, about form and function with new innovators, uh, people who may be uh, tomorrow's uh, Ferdinand Alexander Porsche. Who knows? And of course, we'll also be doing our traditional episodes uh, going into the archives and uh, looking at the history of watches and the things that, that made the industry what it is today. Mm-hmm.